Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, uh, I just cry out to you for uh, mercy uh, for this class. Help uh, me to teach. Uh, please uh, help our hearts to listen and to learn. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would uh, open up the beauty and wonder of uh, Scripture, the minor prophets to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. Um, okay, so we have a lot to cover. Um, minor prophets. So the structure of the class that I have sort of envisioned is we're going to talk a little bit about who are prophets in general. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about where the prophets fit in biblical history because it helps us to read and understand the prophets. I think a lot of times people don't know what's going on and they're confused because they don't know where exactly it fits. And, and so that's why we're going to actually talk, uh, spend a big chunk of the time on this. Uh, how do, where do the prophets fit in the whole story? But first, what about the prophets? Okay, so this is a very, very um, broad general model. The difference between a prophet and a priest uh, is that the prophet represents God, right? The prophet speaks, um, speaks the words of God, right? And then the priest represents the people before God, right? And so the priest uh, offers sacrifices. And I say this is a very broad model because... Uh, a lot of times in the Bible, you'll see priests represent God before the people and prophets represent the people before God. But this is sort of the, the model that we have. And uh, notice that the people do not have direct access to God. Why do you think that is? Why can't the people directly talk to God and why can't God directly talk to the people? Why does there always have to be this middleman, prophet or priest? Yvonne? Yes. Huh? Yes, God is, God is, not that he's too holy, but he's holy, right? And we are sinful, right? And so the Bible represents, the Bible understands this vast gulf because of sin. Okay? And so we always need what is known as a mediator. Between God and man, okay? We can't just approach God. We need a priest to come before God for us. And God can't just talk to us. God can't come down. Because if he comes down, we'll be incinerated because of his holiness. And so we need a prophet, right? Um, there's a few, uh, a few more differences between, uh, between a prophet and a priest. The priest, uh, what tribe does the priest come from? Levites, right? Um... What about, what tribe does the prophets come from? Anyone? There's, there's 12. Yes, Christina is correct. That was a trick question, right? So the prophets, there's no tribal requirement. Um, okay, so uh, the priests operate in the temple... Okay, they're connected to the temple, and they offer sacrifices, right? And so they're very like um, institutionally connected to this uh, this uh, giant building in the middle of Israel. But the prophet is kind of like a, a, a lone, ra- a free range ranging agent, right? So there's no institution that he's connected to. 
The priest is sort of an insider in some ways. He's actually uh, paid by the state, right? The state of Israel uh, would collect the tithes, and out of the tithes, they would pay the priest. So the priest was on the payroll of the king, and therefore, the priest in some sense was corruptible, right? And actually, if you look at a lot of the, uh, the, the prophets, the prophets are blasting the priesthood because the priesthood uh, becomes corrupt. And the priest, you don't need a particular calling to be a priest. You're born into the priesthood, right? Simply by being a Levite, boom, you're there, right? Uh, but a prophet was really an outsider. Um, a prophet is always specially called by God. Uh, the prophet sort of uh, runs outside the system. And the prophet is not at all sort of accountable or on the payroll of the king. And so a lot of times as Israel deteriorates, the priesthood goes bad, but the, but the prophet is there calling out both the king and the priests. All right? Um, are there any questions to that so far? Okay. Now, uh, there are three classic texts that tell us a little bit of, uh, that, that give us our understanding and definition of, the, of what, uh, what is a prophet. And uh, let's look at, um, starting Exodus chapter 6. Let's have Harry read that for us. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Yeah, so what we learn here is that right? God says, listen. Moses says, I can't talk to Pharaoh. And God says, listen. You will be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. Right? And so you talk to Aaron, and Aaron talks to, the, the, to, to Pharaoh. And so we see here this mediatory role that Aaron takes, that Moses doesn't directly speak to Pharaoh, but that he uses this mediator. Right? And so that uh, gives us this, um, this, uh, this model, that, there, that there's no direct access, there's no direct communication. Um, and we sort of uh, fill out the context a little bit more in Exodus chapter 4. Who's next? Uh, Tub, can you read that? Yeah. Um, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with you, your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there, uh, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Yeah, and this fills out a little bit more what's going on here, right? Moses is, is afraid. He can't go to Pharaoh. And so God says, all right, I'm going to give you Aaron. 
And what makes Aaron particularly qualified to be this mediator between Moses and, and Pharaoh? Aaron is Moses' brother, right? Which means that there's a kind of intimacy. And there's this kind of a close relationship and connection that qualifies Aaron to be this mediator. And so Moses says, I'm not eloquent. I, I can't speak before Pharaoh. Right? The Bible tells us that Moses was the humblest man. Uh, and so Moses can freely speak to Aaron and, and, and speak his mind and say, you know, like, like the way brothers can speak. And then Aaron then translates that to Pharaoh. And what that gives us a sense of, uh, of, of the role of the prophet is that the prophet has an intimate relationship with God that we do not have. Right? And so the prophet is uniquely qualified. Not that God is afraid of the people, but that God is too holy for us. And therefore the, pro- the prophet goes before the presence of God and God speaks freely to the prophet and the prophet comes down and, and, and tells us uh, what God has said. Because of this closeness of this relationship, right? Are there any questions so far? No? All right, let's go on to uh, Numbers chapter 12. Um, this is the other text that sort of helps us to understand what's going on in, in, with prophets. Ooh, Kim, Kim, can you uh, read Numbers 12? And the Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, Make myself oh, wait, sorry. Before you keep reading, let me give you the context, right? Because we're kind of jumping in the middle of the conversation. All right, so what's happening in Numbers 12 is um, the people are grumbling against Moses. And they're angry. And they're saying, look, Moses, why are you the only one who has access to God? Uh, why are you the only spokesman for God? Can't we communicate with God through other prophets, through other people? And then God comes down and says, I'll tell you guys. Why you, you why it's Moses. All right, keep going. Okay. Start from the beginning, sorry. I, I sure will. And the Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Yeah. He tells us something unique about his relationship to the prophet, to Moses, right? Which is that um, he speaks clearly, right? Not in riddles, not in visionary language. Um, But to us, he speaks in riddles, right? To us, he speaks using this kind of uh, imagery and uh, metaphors and uh, 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 a dreamlike language. Why does God do that? Why doesn't God speak to us clearly uh, the way he does to a prophet? And the reason why, I think, is because that way it requires spiritual discernment on our part. It requires a certain humility. We need to search out. No one can just say, aha, I understand. They have to really work at it and really humble themselves and pray to God. And I think this is why I threw in the Isaiah 6 verse. Let me read it to you. And the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God purposefully masks himself. He purposefully hides himself in prophetic speech so that uh, those who don't know him won't understand what's going on. 
and only his people will understand. And therefore, what that tells us is the way we read the, the prophets is we have to read it with a great deal of humility. Don't read it in a sort of wooden literalistic way. Remember, it's imagery. Remember, it's, it's, it's in riddles. Remember, it's, it's not to say that there's like some secret meaning, of course, but that it requires work. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they read the prophets, and I know this is true for me, um, it's really hard to read the prophets, right? It's not as easy as, say, the Gospels, right? Where, like, you know, Jesus went to Nazareth. There's nothing, you know, you, you know exactly what that means. He went to Nazareth, right? But the prophets will often speak in kind of code language with all this imagery and it requires a lot of homework and a lot of work. And this is part of the reason why we're doing this minor prophet study is to help you to kind of understand you actually need a great deal of biblical literacy to understand the prophets because they're always making allusions to biblical history and they'll do it with one word or even a phrase and you have to understand what they're talking about. By the way, a great resource if you're looking for one is the ESV Study Bible. Um, but even better resource would be a very good commentary will help you to understand. But it's hard. It's a lot of work. Christina, did you have a question? So, when God speaks to the people, it's through riddles. Yes. And it fails. So you're saying that's what, when the prophets speak to God, that's, I mean, when the prophets speak to the people, that's what happens. That's what happens, yeah. And you'll see that. As we go through the minor prophets, you will see, you will see the prophets speak in riddles. Not clearly. It reminds me of the parable. How Jesus would always speak in parables. Yeah. So that, I mean, he wouldn't explain things except to his disciples. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he would say, um, I revealed these truths to babes. But to the so-called wise and educated, it doesn't make any sense. And so that's the purpose. Are there any questions before we go to the next question? So far? No? All right, we're, we're, we're doing good. Okay, uh, question number two. When did prophets arise in biblical history? What are the meta, uh, major categories of prophets? So this section is sort of like um, facts about prophets. Uh, gives us categories to... to um, to understand. Uh, all right, so the first question is, who was the first prophet? So let me throw it out to you guys. Who was the first prophet? Who wants to venture? Who wants to see? No, no demerits if you get it wrong. <laughs> who was the first prophet? Sammy says? Noah. Noah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it's a kind of trick question. We're not really sure. Um, <laughs> because uh, uh, Noah certainly qualifies, right? And certainly Moses qualifies, right? Because Moses is called a prophet. Um, but it's sort of murky, right? And, and the first prophet in the classical sense, the way that we kind of conceive of prophets that we're going to see in, among the minor prophets, for example, would be uh, Samuel. Right? But... If you were to answer if Samuel is the first prophet, that's technically not true because there were prophets prior to Samuel. But someone like Noah, sort of like, you know, he, he breaks boundaries, right? Because is he only a prophet? Well, no, he's a couple of other things too. Um, we can even say Adam was a prophet, right? I mean, so, all right. Uh, who, okay, and then this was the first prophet in a classical sense, right? He's the model that all other prophets follow. Who is the greatest prophet? This one is a little less... Um, subjective. Who is the greatest prophet? The most influential? The Well, yes, Jesus. No, you can't answer the CBS answer. Who is the greatest Old Testament prophet? Anyone? Elijah. Elijah, that's right. 
Um, Elijah, you know, came onto the scene at Israel's lowest moment, right? The most wicked king that ever existed, Ahab, was on the scene. And so to counter the most wicked king, God <coughs> sets up the greatest prophet, Elijah, who did the, the most amazing things. I mean, uh, when Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, who does he see? Two figures in the Old Testament. He sees Elijah and Moses, right? Moses, uh, this is uh, the way the, uh, the Jews understood the Bible is two categories, law and prophet. Uh, and so Moses represents law. Elijah represents the greatest of the prophets. Uh, question number two. Um, what is the difference between the non-writing prophets and the writing prophets? Anyone? Who are the non-writing prophets and who are the writing prophets? This is not a trick question. Wait, so the non-writing prophets mean somebody writes it for them, uh, no. Good guess. Is it basically like some prophets have books in the Bible and others don't? That is correct. Um, wow. What happened was, uh, you have, uh, 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 you know, the kingdom of Israel split into two. And about 150 years after that split, the prophets all of a sudden started writing books. And we think maybe the first writing prophet, this is a little bit of speculation, but we think it was Amos, who we're going to cover next week. But the prophets all of a sudden started writing. And if you look at, for example, Elijah, Elisha, they didn't write a book, right? There isn't, you know, the prophecy of Elijah. Um, and that's not to say the prophets didn't write. Uh, we know that Samuel, for example, did write. Uh, we think he wrote uh, probably uh, the, the, a good chunk of 1 Samuel. We know Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the, I mean the, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and not all prophets only wrote prophecies, right? We, we think that, for example, um, Ezekiel wrote First uh, and 2 Kings. Um, so this guy was prolific, right? Um, but sometime around 150 years after the kingdom split, prophets started to write. Why did that happen? We're not sure, right? Uh, Harry, if you ever want a great theological paper to write, you can, you can answer that question. But here's some uh, speculative a uh, 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 guesses. We think that the prophets prior to the writing prophets were really, the audience was more the king. And they were trying to turn the king back to God and to influence the king, right? Like that's what Elijah and Elisha were doing. And sometime in the middle of Israel history, the prophets kind of gave up on the kings and they started to address the people. And so they want to write it down to make it disseminate. That's one theory. Another theory is that literacy was um, spreading. And so the prophets started to write. Um, another theory is that uh, the prophets started to change their message from repent to doom. And, and then, but there's grace. And so they want to write it down and preserve that. But we're not sure. Okay? That's maybe not a great satisfying answer. But there's a lot we don't know. Um, question, is there any questions with that? All right, question number three. What is the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets? That is not a trick question as well. Major and minor. It's not a musical distinction. How big and long they're writing on. Yes. Good. Um, that's it. The minor prophets wrote short books. The major prophets wrote long books. Right? It's not... Major prophets are not the important prophets, and the minor prophets are, you know, second-string, uh, bench-warmer prophets, right? There's no, there, it isn't a distinction in persons, it's a distinction in length, right? That's it. 
Uh, the one, one of the reasons why we're studying the minor prophets is because Isaiah is like, what, 66 chapters? Ooh, that's kind of intimidating. But then, you know, you read, uh, 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 most of the minor prophets are three chapters. You could read it in five minutes. This is great, right? Good for us. Um, there are 12 minor prophets and there are five major prophets. Here's a quiz for you guys. Who are the five major prophets? Or five major prophet, prophetic books? Isaiah. Isaiah, good. It's, it's, it's some of the obvious ones, right? Isaiah, what else? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah. Okay, that's three. Two more. Daniel. Daniel. You don't really think of Daniel as a prophet, but uh, the second half of his book is all prophecy. And then who, what's the fifth book? This is, this is tough. Lamentations? Yes. Lamentations. Whoa. Lamentations, you know, was written by Jeremiah. Oh, did I say Ezekiel wrote First and Second Kings? No, we're, we're pretty certain Jeremiah wrote First and Second Kings. This guy was prolific. I think all he did was write. Um, are there any questions there? All right. Now on to biblical history. Ah, the exciting stuff. Okay. I have 25 minutes. All right. Um, it's important to understand biblical history because uh, we have to know where the prophets play the role in history. And here I want to give a little bit of a huge overview. And the Bible can be summarized in two covenants. Okay? Okay? There's something called the covenant of works. Yes. <laughs> and something called the covenant of grace. Christina. summarized in two covenants. This is a very simple uh, uh, scheme, right? You have the covenant of works that Adam in the garden uh, was given a test, a law. Don't eat from the tree. If you eat from the tree, you will die. If you obey God, you will enter into eternal fellowship with the Father, with, with, with God, right? And so it was, it was purely based on works. It was purely based on Adam's obedience. But of course, Adam failed. And after Adam failed, God put in place the covenant of grace, which is, I will save you, not based on your obedience, but you receive this grace, you receive this mercy through faith. Right? And so the principle here is... Um, Righteousness through obedience, right? Or we can say law. And here it's righteousness uh, through faith, right? Which is completely different than obedience, right? Faith means you admit you're a sinner and that you can't do nothing. So these things are opposed. Right? And uh, where do we see that? 
Um, let's look at the two texts, uh, uh, the first two texts. Genesis 2, let me just read it for the sake of time. Um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you shall eat of it, you will surely die. And so notice there is a conditionality to this covenant, which is there's a kind of if-then logic. If you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Notice that if-then conditional language, right? That it was based on obedience in the garden, okay? Look at um, now the covenant of grace, uh, Romans 3. Paul writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me, say, let me explain that very quickly, right? What does Paul mean by works of the law? It means... By obeying the law, by being a good person, by following all the rules, no human being will be justified, meaning no human being will be accepted. Why? Because Adam failed, and Adam plunged all of humanity to sin and death. So what is the purpose of the law? He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is now no longer a pathway to righteousness. The purpose of the law is now what? To show us we're sinners. Right? It's a mirror. Uh, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, but here's the covenant of grace. Righteousness is now, there's, there's a way to have righteousness without obeying. How can you have this righteousness without obeying, the, without obeying in the law? It says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's what he's saying. It's through faith. By believing in the gospel, by believing in Christ. Okay? And so this scheme is very helpful because here we have the covenant of works, but we're no longer in the covenant of works. As, uh, God put in place the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace covers all of biblical history, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. And that includes everyone. So everyone is saved in the same way. How are you saved? By trusting in God, by having faith in the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, they have faith in the coming Messiah. And in the New Testament, you have faith in the Messiah who has come. Does that make sense? Um, and so everyone, you know, we're talking about Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, King David, Solomon. Everyone is saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. Does that make sense? That's a very, very helpful way. Because you know what that tells us? It tells us that the whole Bible is one story. It's a story of grace. All right? It's not like... Um, this would be the division. This would be the division of the Old Testament and New Testament. It's not like things change. Things don't change. You're still saved the same way in the New Testament as you're saved in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Um, now, how do we know this is true? Here's the classic text, Genesis 15, right? Because it shows us that Abraham was saved through faith. Uh, Genesis 15, and the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of, and the number, and number the stars, if you, if you are able to number them, then the Lord said to him, so shall your offspring be. So that's the great promise that God gives Abraham. And how does Abraham respond? And Abraham believed the Lord and he, meaning God, counted it to him as righteousness. How is Abraham saved? He's saved by believing the promise that God gives him. And in fact, 
That passage, Genesis 15, is a key foundational passage because Paul refers to it in two separate letters, in Romans and Galatians, to explain what is the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the exact same thing that Abraham did in believing in the promises, right? Okay. Now, what about the Mosaic Covenant? And this is where things get a little tricky. And why are we even mentioning the Mosaic Covenant? Because this is where the prophets come in. Um, so let's call this... By the way, people get confused by the word mosaic. Um, it just simply means the, the covenant given to Moses at Mount Sinai. All right. So here you have the mosaic covenant, and the prophets belong here. Okay, the minor prophets certainly belong in the Mosaic Covenant. So we need to understand the Mosaic Covenant if we want to understand what the heck the prophets are doing. Okay, and so here's the question: Is the Mosaic a covenant of grace or is it a covenant of works? That, by the way, I'm, I'm going to explain it in like ten minutes. But that, by the way, is it can occupy like multiple years of your life of study, right? This, by the way, is the reason why everyone fights. Everyone fights about the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and I'm going to tell you my understanding. And if you say, I disagree, that's fine. There are many, many, many people who disagree on this issue. So I'm just letting you know, okay? We're entering into controversial waters. As I've said, every Sunday seems to be controversy Sunday. <laughs> but um, what about the Mosaic Covenant? Is it, is it operating on the principle of grace or is it operating on the principle of law and obedience? That's the question, okay? Um, Let's read uh, Leviticus 18. Okay, let me, let me flip my notes here. All right. Uh, verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Well, by the way, if, 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 you're, if you don't know, Leviticus is obviously one of the five books of Moses. So it's firmly within the Hosea Covenant. Okay. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Okay, listen very carefully. Verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like, if you obey, then you will live. That sounds like if-then language. That sounds like conditional standards. That sounds an awful lot like the covenant of works, right? And this is not just me imagining it. Paul specifically quotes uh, Leviticus 18 as an example of the covenant of works, as an example of what it is, what grace is not. Okay, so let me read to you uh, Galatians 3. Paul writes, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, remember, he's, he's citing Abraham as an example of how the gospel works, of how grace works, right? Abraham believed, and he's credited righteousness. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, right? If you try to obey, you're just going to get cursed, right? Because all the law tells you is that, is that you're a sinner. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's the principle of grace. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, right? They're opposed to each other. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That last quote there is a quote of Levit Leviticus 18. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying... Um, uh, faith 
and law are opposed, right? The law is not a faith. If you try to please God by obeying the law, you are cursed. But if you try to be accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ for what he did for you, you will have righteousness. And these two things are opposed. And then he says this law principle is here in the Mosaic Covenant. Right? He quotes Leviticus 18. And so he's saying the Mosaic Covenant sounds a lot like the covenant of works. But, okay, and this is where things get really confusing. Just a few verses down, Galatians 3, 16 and 17. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Right? So Abraham was given the promise. Remember, Abraham believed the promise, and then he was saved. Uh, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, but here's the important verse, verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after what, by the way? 430 years after, what is he talking about? The law came 430 years after what? Anyone want to guess? The promise given to you. Yes, the promise was given to Abraham, remember? And then 430 years later, the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay? That's what, Moses, that's what Paul's talking about. Okay? Listen, this is so key. Verse 17. What I mean is this. The law, right? He's talking about like the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is Paul saying? He's saying, don't be confused. Just because the law was given to Moses, that doesn't mean that this is invalid. That doesn't cancel this out. This covenant continues. In other words, the Mosaic covenant is under the covenant of grace. Right? It's all grace. It doesn't nullify anything. Everyone inside the Mosaic covenant, King David, um, you know, Josiah, you know, uh, 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 I mean, anyone, everyone, right? Jacob, not Jacob, that's before Moses. But um, everyone inside the Mosaic Covenant is saved by grace. They're saved through faith in the coming Messiah. And so this is really confusing. You know why it's confusing? Because Paul, in the same chapter, it's crazy. Paul, in the same <laughs> chapter, says Mosaic Covenant law, bad. You know, that's the way of that. And then he says Mosaic Covenant grace, it, you know, we're saved by grace. No one in the Mosaic Covenant is saved by law. And so, you should be really confused. You know, and all I've done, by the way, is set up the controversy. How do we, how do we resolve this, this, this con seemingly contradiction? Okay? This, 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 this is going to be fun. All right. That leads me to my next point. Um, point C. And so I've kind of written down the answer that I think uh, is the case in, 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 uh, in italics, okay? So then what was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? It's kind of an anomaly. You know, it's kind of funny that I say it's an anomaly because it, it, it encompasses most of the Bible. But um, it's an anomaly. What do we do with the Mosaic Covenant? And here's the answer. Foundationally, the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of grace, right? The righteous live by faith. And so what I would say is this. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to heaven and hell, it is a covenant of grace. Okay? Nothing's changed when I said there's only two covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Okay? Uh, 
But on another level, the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works for keeping the promised land. All right? So that's the key. Why, how, why is there this conditional language of law and obedience? Only with respect to the land. It's a covenant of works. Right? It's if then. It's conditional. Right? If Israel obeyed, they would stay in the land and prosper. If Israel disobeyed, they would experience exile. Right? So if you obey, you live and prosper. If you disobey, you will be expelled and you will experience exile and death. In this way, I'm continuing on in italics, Israel re-dramatized Adam in the Garden of Eden. Like Adam, Israel disobeyed and was expelled from paradise. Thus, Israel learned the gospel through failure. All right, that is like crazy amount of information. All right, so let me, uh, let me prove to you this paradigm, okay? How do I know that the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works, conditionality, obedience, only when it comes to the land? Uh, look at the last passage, Deuteronomy 30. All right, listen, okay? Listen to the if-then language and notice what is, what is the, the consequence, so to speak, okay? Is it salvation or is it land? All right? Verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Verse 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His way, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then... You shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. I don't believe that God is talking about salvation. He's talking about life in the land. Verse 17, But if your heart turns away, and and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Right? So the if-then language has to do with the promised land. Not salvation. But you're saying, but but the language seems, like do you notice that the language isn't, if you obey, you stay in the land. If you disobey, you go into exile. He says, if you obey, you stay in the land and live. And if you disobey, you go into exile and you die. It sounds a lot like the language here, right? Life and death. It's this kind of totalizing language. By the way, this, the, the fact that it's this kind of epic language is why people fight. right? Because people say, no, no, no. What was really offered here is salvation. right? But I don't think so. Um, you know why we know that this is really still a covenant of grace? Because think about it, right? When was the law given? Was the law given before or after Israel was rescued out of slavery? It was, it was given after, right? That's the gospel. God saves his people, and then he gives them the law. If he gave them the law and see if they obey, and then he saves them, then it's covenant of works. Right, And if, if you look at the whole Mosaic Covenant, it gives you all these pictures of grace. What are all the sacrifices? What is the Passover feast? What are all these different institutions pointing forward to? It's pointing to Christ. Right? And so the Mosaic Covenant is a grace. But with respect to land, it's, it's works. Okay, and then what's my proof of that? Well, or I mean, why, why, is, why, is, um, sorry, why is the Mosaic Covenant doing this? And the reason why I believe is because 
uh, Israel right here is is purposefully re re experiencing what Adam experienced. Does that make sense? So here's how it works, okay? The promised land, if you remember, the language of the promised land is that it's a garden. Okay, this is very important. The garden motif. Okay? The promised land is a garden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a lush and beautiful paradise. And the meaning is that Israel is back in the garden. They're back in the Garden of Eden, like Adam, and then God gives them a law. And he says, if you obey, you live. If you disobey, you, 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 you will die. And so Israel is re-experiencing what Adam experienced so that when Israel fails, and they will fail because Israel is sinners, right? So that when Israel fails, they will learn the lesson that Adam was supposed to learn, or that everyone was supposed to learn, which is that the law only points to death. The only hope is grace. So Israel went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of failure, the slow-mo of Genesis 3, in order to understand the gospel more deeply. Does that make sense? So that in the New Testament, you have Jesus who comes, right? And Jesus is also placed in the garden, right? He's placed in the, um, the garden of Gethsemane, and he's also faced with a law. And if he obeys, then him and all his people enter into paradise. And if he disobeys, then all is lost. And so these three, uh, these three figures right here, Jesus, Adam, and Israel, is, they're all playing the same drama. Adam fails, Israel fails, but Jesus succeeds. And because of Jesus, where do we go? What's, it's called the new heavens. The new heavens and the new earth. Right? And if you look at the description of the new heavens and the new earth, what does it sound like? It sounds like a garden. Right? And so that's the whole point. Heaven is a garden. Adam was placed in a heaven-like scenario, but he failed. And then Israel was placed in another heaven-like scenario, but they failed. All right? I don't know if that was understandable, but let me, let, me, let me just show you from Genesis, the three texts I have it there. There's the garden motif, right? If you look at Genesis 2, notice again that the Garden of Eden obviously is a garden. And in Revelation 22, look at um, starting in verse 2. Um, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There again is the garden language. And then look at Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and springs flowing out of the hill, of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, a land in which you will lack, no, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. This is a land, this is like amazing. It's, it's so bountiful, it's so lush. By the way, if you ever go to real Israel, you're like, what the heck happened here, right? But it is so, it's so beautiful. It is a garden. It's a paradise. And so the reason why God placed Adam, I mean, uh, Israel in, uh, 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 the people of Israel in the land is so that they know they're back in the garden. By the way, when Adam failed, he was kicked out of Eden. Which direction he was kicked? Which direction was he kicked out? Does anyone remember? Yes, he was kicked east. Right? Steinbeck wrote a famous novel called East of Eden. He was kicked out east. When Israel failed, and they were also kicked out of land, which direction did they go? 
they, they went east to Babylon, right? All this language. For example, the temple, the tabernacle. Do you know what the inside of the tabernacle and the temple was decorated with? It was, by the way, all glittering gold. But what was the etchings? It was etchings of garden. The temple was supposed to be a garden. In, you were supposed to go inside the temple and you see, you see all these garden etchings all around you because the idea is that you're back in the garden. But Israel failed, and so that helps us to understand that through the works of the law, you cannot be saved. We need Jesus Christ. All right, two minutes then to, to throw in where the prophets fit in. Next page. Okay, where are, the, where are the prophets in this? The prophets come onto the scene after Israel has broken the covenant. After uh, 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 they violated the covenant of works with respect to the land. And so, so the prophets are what I would call covenant prosecutors. And the imagery I would like you to have is that it's a courtroom scene. And uh, Israel is the, uh, the defendant. And the prophets are the prosecutors. And they're bringing the case against Israel. And they're laying out all the sins and why Israel deserves to go into exile. And that's how you read the prophets. And, um, but even within the prophecies themselves, the prophets say, Israel broke the covenant, they deserve exile. In fact, exile is inevitable, it's coming. But then, even within that description, there's always these glimmers of hope, there's always these, um, uh, these gospel promises and that shows you the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant and the purpose of the prophets, which is that once Israel experienced sin and failure and death, they're ready. They're ready to, to, to hear about Jesus. Uh, let me give you just a, a, an analogy to help us understand, right? Um, let's say that, and I'm kind of making it up on the spot here, but let's say you have a little child. And you want the child, uh, you're going to give the child purely by grace, you're going to give the child Disneyland, right? Um, but before you, give the child, uh, before you give the child Disneyland, you want the child to realize that this is purely your grace. You're doing this purely out of favor. You're, 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 it's not because of the child. But you tell the child, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a rule. If you obey the rule, you can go to Disneyland. If you disobey, you cannot go. And so the rule is, you know, um, you have to brush your teeth every day for the next week. But you know your child will, will, will violate that rule. But you give that rule anyway. Why do you do it? Why do you purposefully make the child experience failure? You do it so that the child will know that in the end, after he fails, he still gets this and that because it's grace. Maybe it's a terrible analogy. But that's what God is doing with his people. God purposefully gives them the Mosaic Covenant, knowing they will fail, right? Because he wants them to realize again. I mean, the lesson of Adam, I mean, it could be this. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, boom, Adam fails. Genesis 4, Jesus comes onto the scene. But Jesus doesn't come. Why? God purposefully delays the coming of Jesus so that his people will experience over and over and over and over again sin, failure, death, and then the promise of gospel, promise of of mercy. No, qu no questions allowed because we went way over time. Um, I apologize if that, if, if you are completely and totally confused, um, sorry. <laughs> I have no answer to that. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, help us to understand the, 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 the beauty of the gospel story. 
that it is a single story from beginning to end of Jesus Christ as our rescuer, as our, as our savior. Um, help us to see that the prophets illuminate that and speak of Christ and speak of the gospel. And I pray that for people who uh, are confused and didn't know what the heck I was talking about this past hour, uh, Lord, I pray that nevertheless they would still derive benefit. Um, and I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.